If you have a copy of the Word of God, I would invite you to turn with me into the book of Exodus. We're going to take a rather large chunk this morning. Uh, Before I do that, I want to say uh, just a couple things. Um, One, uh, God has been really faithful and kind to me and my family over these past 10 years. Uh, I wasn't expecting, didn't know that was coming, Robbie. Um, we're We're very thankful to be here. And through the ups and downs, we have been together And God has been profoundly kind to us uh, in allowing us to come here and serve in the way that we have. And so we're very thankful to you. But more than that, we're thankful to God for what he is doing and what it has done. And we look forward to the future and see what he'll be doing in our lives for the next five, ten years, however long he chooses to keep us together. Um, That said, I wanted to give you a quick health update. So as you know, I had tests that went on at Duke this past Thursday, and uh, everything came back clear. So very thankful for that. Um, um, Thank you for your prayers and concern. Uh, I definitely sensed God's enabling and enduring grace, and so thank you for praying for those things for me. Uh, My next surveillance is in June, so the clock starts again, but uh, I get a little bit of a respite. Um, At least I feel that way for a day or two, you know, and then it's back to, is anything there? Not that you all are ever nervous, but, you know, your pastor is. Um, So if you want to pray for me, that would be great. Looking forward to... um, um, what God has in that, in that way as well. All right, well, let's think about the text we're looking at this morning. That's why we're here, to hear from God's word. Um, remember that the Bible answers four big questions. Where did I come from? What happened? Where can I find hope? And where's all this going? Four questions that all of us ask. Four questions that we've got to find an answer to. And the Bible gives us the answer to those questions in the four-part story. So what are the parts of the story? Can you tell me? Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. Those are the answers to those four questions and the way the Bible answers them. Now, what also needs to be understood with with this four-part story is this, these five statements. Remember, the four-part story... Um, is kind of the skeleton, if you will, and these five statements are like the ligaments and the muscles. So here are the five statements that fill in this four-part skeleton. God has always had a people. He's always been building his church. Evil is real, but never gets the last word. Grace, God initiates, pursues, and saves. Genesis to Revelation. He did it. Jesus actually accomplished something in his life and death and resurrection. And everything is moving toward Jesus. If you can anchor your heart in that four-part story and those five statements, you will at least understand what Christianity is and what it means to follow the Lord Jesus and who you are and who he is and where we're going. So you can even get more narrow. This morning we're looking at a large section in Exodus, chapter roughly 7 through 12. We're going to talk about the plagues and the Passover. And this morning the point of the message, I've got it down to two words. You ready? Same story. You remember that? So when you leave here today and wonder what in the world was that guy saying today? Hopefully you'll think same story. 
I'm going to read an excerpt from Exodus chapter 5 all the way through chapter 12, predominantly chapter 12. Listen to this, Exodus 5, 1 and 2. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then the end of chapter 11 through verse 13 of chapter 13, chapter 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, Every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Don't you love the imagery of that? Eat and be ready to go, right? Oh, let's see, now I lost my place. 12, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the, go the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Let's pray together. Lord, this is your word. Most of us have probably heard something about this passage before. Most of us have heard something about your people being in Egypt and how you brought them out. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand this afresh, that you would help us understand what is here and what you're saying and what you're communicating and, and how we fit into that. Lord, work in us. Act on us. Keep us from coming to worship thinking that we need to get tips for life or, or how to be a nicer person or, or how to work harder or how to be better. Lord, change us so that we want to come to worship and learn what it means that you're God and what you've done and how you're changing us and how much we need Jesus. Holy Spirit, we know this is your department. We know you have power over us 
We know that you caused this word that we just read to come into existence. We know that it's your primary job to bring us to Christ. So we ask that you would do that. Again, Father, Son, and Spirit, we ask that you would get the glory, that you would get the glory, and that this week our lives might boast that we belong to you. We pray this for those things, for those reasons, in the name of Jesus, amen. Remember we looked at Joseph meeting his brothers last week in Egypt, remember that? Story of Joseph with Genesis 37 to Genesis 50. When Joseph meets his brothers, that's how God's people get into Egypt. That's where the 12 tribes comes from. That's where the nation comes from. And that's how they ended up in Egypt. Now, the first part of Exodus, we find that God... um, sends Moses to Pharaoh and begins to interact with him, we find out that Pharaoh is pretty persistent in not letting God go. Now, if you're paying attention to the series, and that was just a setup to hopefully try to get us in the passage, but hang with me here. If you've been paying attention to the series, I hope that you've gotten this sense. After Genesis 3, which is a record of our rebellion, because the Bible says we were there and did what Adam and Eve did. After Genesis 3, left to ourselves, we are in absolute disaster. Right after Genesis 3, uh, murder begins between brothers. Then you've got polygamy. Then you've got all these other things that continue to erupt. Then it's just one dysfunctional family after another. Joseph and his family were unbelievably dysfunctional, weren't they? And in the midst of that, not only do you see dysfunction, but you also see God's faithfulness. What God has set up the world to be in Genesis 1 and 2, that is the way things are going to be. And our rebellion can't even stop it. So that in the midst of seeing left to ourselves, there's disorder and disaster you also see how powerful God is to continue to work and do things in the world because he wants his glory spread everywhere. And that means when we think about this passage today, we should have two questions in mind. One is really general because it's a good time for me to ask it, and the other is specific for this passage. Here's the general question. So from now on, If you had the opportunity to talk with the people of God in the Old Testament, if you had the opportunity to talk to them and you were able to say to them this question, what's your story? This is what they would say. Either I was enslaved in Egypt or my forefathers were and we found shelter in the blood of the lamb. God is with us and he's taking us to the promised land. That's the answer that you should get. That's the answer that you would get. Here's the second question, and this one is more specific for our passage this morning. It's the question that we read in chapter five and verse two that sets up all of the plagues and the Passover. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's response is, Why should I obey God? 
Why should I obey God? Beloved, that very question is the question that God's people would ask just a few weeks and a few months later after God brought them out of Egypt. It's the same question that is on all of our hearts whenever we face temptation. Our question is, why should I obey God? It hits real deep. It's comprehensive. It affects all of us. We think about this question all the time. Why should I obey God? So this morning, we're gonna have two stopping points. The first is chaos, and the next is freedom. And again, we're working our way through the plagues and the Passover. We're gonna do that on these two stops, chaos and freedom. You got me? Somewhat clear? All right, well, let's jump in. Let's start thinking about chaos. Remember, Exodus 7 through 12 gives us a record of the plagues in Egypt. Remember that God sent Moses to Pharaoh, and God said to Pharaoh through Moses, let my people go that they may worship me. And Pharaoh says, no. He won't do it. He holds on to them. Now, that is what precipitates and ends up bringing these plagues into the foreground. And I want you to know that these plagues, if you go back and read them, and if you read a lot of scholars on this, this is what you'll find out. That these plagues were carefully chosen to be very specific. They were meant for a very specific purpose. And the purpose of the plagues and why God chose them and why God did what he did is this. God was going after all of the Egyptian gods. All of them. That's why part of what we read today, God says, so that you will know that I am God and I'm greater than their gods. In other words, the first plague was the Nile turning to blood. You remember this? Did you know that there are actual, literal, ancient documents, ancient documents that say that Egypt is a gift from the Nile? That the Egyptians have thought that they were given a land from the Nile River. That the Nile was to be worshipped and honored because it was the Nile that gave them life and gave them a land and perpetuated their whole territory. So that God going after the Nile was God going after the biggest God in Egypt. And then following that, you had the frogs. Did you know that that was another deity in Egypt? ancient Egypt, that there was a God that body was feminine and face was a frog. You can go all the way down the line with gnats, with flies or mosquitoes or stinging creatures, I think the original literally means, all the way down, livestock, locusts, hail, boils, all of them had some connection to the Egyptian gods because God was saying I am coming after what you think brings you wealth. I am coming after what you think brings you power. I am coming after what you think brings you fertility. I am coming after, God is saying, what you think and what you have built your life upon that will make it successful. I am coming dead right after it. Because I love you and because I care. Because without me, 
Life is full of disorder. Life is full of destruction. Even if you feel it piece by piece, little by little. That's why if you go back and read chapter 7 through 12, what you'll find is that almost in every plague and sometimes twice in other plagues, God says, we're going to send this plague so that they may know that I am God. God carefully chooses these plagues because he's coming after idols. Now, there are a couple other things that we learn from those who are really well-versed in the ancient world. Here's one of them. These plagues actually have a logical flow to them. See if you can work this out in your mind. We're not gonna go down the rabbit, hail, rabbit trail in every detail of this, but I want you to get a sense of this. Not only were they specifically chosen, but there is a logic to them. You see, if the Nile is taken out and not useful at all, where people would get water and everything, guess what can't live there? Frogs. Which means, guess where frogs go? Everywhere else. And guess what happens when there's no water for frogs to live? They die. And guess what happens when there are frog carcasses everywhere? Flies. And guess what happens when flies are around everywhere? Gnats or mosquitoes. Do you see this logic playing out? Because then it jumps from seeing how there's a logical connection to these plagues, it moves to then moving to livestock and then moving to humanity with boils so that there's this logical progression from the Nile being corrupted all the way to physical affliction and boils because everything is a mess. Does that make logical sense in your mind? Scholars have pointed that out, saying this is one of the reasons why Pharaoh continued to, I'll let you go. No, I won't. Uh, you can go. No, you can't. Because there was this struggle and this fight. He could see things coming and going. He could understand the logical nature of it. And he wasn't willing to admit the supernatural quality of it. And here's another thing that you need to know. It's not just that these were specifically targeting God, their gods, it's not just that there's a logical flow to it, but scholars have said this, that actually, when you look at these plagues and see what's happening, it is the unraveling of created order. You remember what the ninth plague is? Darkness. In other words, when you follow these plagues out, and everything is coming unraveled, and everything is falling apart, and, and the Nile isn't working, and food is scarce, and people have boils, and we can't function with our livestock because they're corrupted and diseased, and we got all these locusts coming in, destroying and eating everything else we have. When you start to unravel that, it goes all the way back to darkness, meaning Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the earth. God is showing us that when you mess with him, and when you try to have other gods in your life where you would find hope and power and meaning and purpose that ultimately everything unravels until your life feels absolutely empty, it feels void of any meaning, and there is just darkness. 
That's what's being communicated in these plagues. That's what's happening. Oh, by the way, let's try to be more specific about this for our time because I don't know, I really don't know any person in my life that like worships livestock or the Nile. I don't have that in my life. You might, I don't. So what are the gods that our God, the living God, is continuing to go after? How does this apply to us? How does this come into our lives? Because if God is not a God that we're gonna follow, what does that mean? You see, God is trying to communicate to us the same message that he did then to Egypt. If you're not following me, then you'll have something else in my place. And if you follow those other things, your life will lead to disorder and destruction. So, if career is your thing, then your career will ask or even demand, or even, we'll say it this way, it will tempt you to sacrifice your family. If career is your God and that's where you get your meaning, then guess what? You're gonna be willing to face the temptation and maybe give in to it of sacrificing your family. And let's press that even further. If your career is your God, you can think that you have to work so much that you know what will begin to happen to you. There will be physical effects. You ever known that to happen? You work so hard, so relentlessly, that not only do you sacrifice your family, or at least tempted to do that, but there start to be physical things in your body. You start to break down because none of us are made to work, 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 and work, and work some more. We're just not made that way. We're made to work. We're made to rest. We're made to have balance in our lives. If money is your God, then you're gonna be tempted to compromise on principles all for the almighty dollar. If financial things are the way that you find that you gain power or influence or prestige or, or that's where your identity is wrapped up in, then you will face temptation to compromise on principle so that you can just make more money. You also have the temptation to think if I have enough money, it can solve my problems. If, the God, if God in your life is comfort and ease, then guess what? You're gonna be tempted to never commit to community anywhere or ever have any deep relationships because if you wanna stay comfortable and you wanna maintain a life of ease, then you won't do things that are hard. You won't think about discipline and where you need discipline in your life because you can actually grow through discipline and saying no to certain things that you just normally would say yes to, like yourself. Sometimes you gotta say no to yourself. You know that, right? No, I really shouldn't do that. I should be doing this. If your God is comfort or ease, your life is going to disintegrate. You'll feel like you're alone. That's at least a possibility. If everything has to be comfortable and everything has to be easy, you probably won't have very deep relationships. And you probably might, and you might end up thinking that you're really alone. And you'll miss out on the reality that relationships are hard, but man, if you're in a good one, and it's hard, and you're in a good one, did you hear me say that? And it's hard, did you? There's ebb and flow. And if God's in the midst of that, man, you're gonna grow and change, and you're gonna see that in the other person. And it's amazing. 
God has used the marriage, my marriage to grow me in a lot of ways. And let me just tell you, it hadn't always been easy or comfortable. But I think that I'm better for it. Well, maybe it's not any of those. Maybe it's not your career. Maybe it's not money. Maybe it's not comfort or ease. Maybe it is being right. Maybe at your core, your God is, I, I need to always be right. Well, let me suggest to you that if your God is always being right, you'll have a really hard time asking sincere questions and being vulnerable and putting yourself out there. Because if you always have to be right, you never want to be in a situation in which you appear to be wrong. You never want to be in a situation in which you think that, oh, this person might think less of me. If being right is your thing, it'll be really hard for you to admit that you're wrong. It'll be really hard for you to repent. So if you wonder whether or not is being right a controlling thing in my life, just look back over the last few weeks and ask yourself, have I admitted that I was wrong in anything that I've said or thought or done? Maybe image is your God. If your image is your God, then the temptation is gonna be to always, to live your life comparing yourself to other people if, if your image is your God, then you have to always be better than someone else and you're always comparing yourself to other people. If image is your God, then you're gonna miss out on so many things because no one will actually know you. You'll create a persona where in public you're one thing and in private you're another. So no one will really know who you are. They'll know who you project and who people perceive. And oh, by the way, there are always gonna be people who are playing the same game and can see through it. There are always gonna be people who are insightful and can tell, well, this person isn't telling the truth. It'll be clear to them and to others. I don't know what your God is, those that I mentioned to you are some of the idols that I struggle with. And God is saying, if you're not following me, you're putting something else in my place. And it will lead to disordered loves. It will lead to destruction in our lives. It will lead to chaos. Now here's the next thing about chaos in these chapters seven through 12 in the plagues. We can't skip the relationship between Pharaoh and God, just can't. If you go back and read it, you're gonna see that Pharaoh and God have this very interesting back and forth in all these chapters. You got times where Pharaoh hardens his heart and you have times where God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What do we do with that? Well, just know, just know that Hardening is part of being caught up in idolatry. It means this, Pharaoh made choices. Pharaoh decided what he wanted to do. And he made those same choices over and over to the point where he didn't just make choices anymore, he was committed to the things that he chose. And somewhere along the line, God gave him over to those choices meaning that God removed his restraining hands so that he just let Pharaoh do exactly what Pharaoh wanted to do. 
So Pharaoh was then cemented in his hardness toward God and toward what God wanted. So make no mistake, you gotta fight with our, we have to fight with our idols because if all we do is give in, God may sometimes say, hey, if that's what you really want, go for it. If you don't see my signs and if you don't understand what's going on in your life and that there's so much disorder and disruption and that doesn't lead you to turn away from self and turn to me, maybe I'll just let you keep going because the end of that is just more destruction. In other words, what God is teaching us is that he is designed for us to live in a certain way. Remember Genesis 1 and 2? He set up the world and everything fits together. There's the sky and there's the sea and there's the land and there are animals for the sky and animals for the sea and and mankind to rule creation. Remember, everything was in order. Everything fit together. Everything worked. And then rebellion came and it was all a mess. And God is saying, if you don't live the way that I've designed everything is going to fall apart. And we can read about that in the Bible and thank God that he continues to intervene. Because if we're left to ourselves, we're going in a very destructive direction. You see, this is where we've got to understand freedom. In order to understand the last plague, the 10th plague, the killing of the firstborn, in order to understand that, we've got to understand this idea in the Bible of firsts. Now, you might have heard this term before. Like in the Bible, the first man to ever live is called the first Adam. We read later in the scripture of the last Adam. Firsts. In other words, When you hear that idea first, you should think representative. Adam represented mankind. Jesus, the last Adam, represented mankind. There's representation with firsts. We also find it with the firstborn. There's a sense in which the firstborn was a symbol of the future. Because when the mom and dad died, guess who would get the bulk of the inheritance and the responsibility to keep up with the family land and to love the other siblings well, the firstborn. And then you've heard this before, first fruits, which is a declaration. In other words, when God blesses his people, he expects them to return to him a first fruits. So that as you receive from God, you've received your skills that allow you to work. And as you work and you earn a wage, God says the first fruits belong to me. It's a declaration that all that we have belongs to God. This is why God would write in the scriptures that if you're not giving to him, it's like you're, you're stealing. Because everything belongs to God. All that you have belongs to God. So not to give and not to declare that all belongs to him through your giving is to say, I'm only spending on myself because I earn this and this is about me. You see? Whereas it's meant to be a declaration that all belongs to God. So it's hard for us to understand this idea of firsts in our, in our culture because we're so individualistic. 
But in the ancient world, they understood that God created the world and we rebelled. And when we rebelled, there was a massive debt. And that debt had to be paid. So this plague with the killing of the firstborn, everyone knew that there was a debt. We all stood underneath a debt we could not pay. We all have a debt that we can't pay. We all are born with a debt that we can't alleviate. Every one of us. And God comes to his people and he approaches Pharaoh and he says, this is the last plague and here is the way out. There's gonna be a feast. There's gonna be a lamb. And he tells his people, as we read, families come together, gather a lamb, eat it, kill it. Take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your house because if you do that, the angel of death will pass over your house, which means that that lamb was a symbol, it was a sacrifice and it was a symbol of substitution, that everyone needs a substitute before God. Everyone needs a substitute for this debt because we can't pay it. And the lamb was representing that substitute for people. It also meant that lamb was not only a substitute, but that lamb actually accomplished something. Because the angel of death had no hold on that house. That debt was read paid in full. Isn't that amazing? And God is saying, celebrate this. Here's the answer to your debt. Here's the answer to what you cannot pay off with all the good things that you can do. Here's the answer, a substitute. This was central in the lives of God's people. Now to fast forward many years from this text in Exodus chapter 12, to fast forward many years, do you remember the night when Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples? Can you put yourself there? Here's Jesus gathered around with his disciples around the table. They're celebrating this meal that has characterized God's people for thousands of years. That there was to be a substitute, a sacrifice, and atonement was to be made. And when you gathered around this table at the Passover, there were three elements. The first was unleavened bread. And the presider would say, here's our bread of affliction. Let's eat as an act of freedom. And what did Jesus say? This is my body, which is broken for you. The next element would be wine, in which the presider would say, this is the wine of our affliction that we might drink and know our freedom. And what did Jesus say on that night? This is my blood which is poured out for you. And the third element at that table to celebrate the Passover, there would be a lamb. And that night when Jesus was with his disciples, guess what? There was no lamb on the table. Because what was he doing? He was standing or sitting in front of them and saying, I am the lamb. I am the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 
So beloved, if someone were to come to you and say, what's your story? You know what you could say? Well, I was in bondage to a bunch of idols. My career, my finances, wanting to be right all the time, my image, a life of comfort, a life of ease. But I've taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And God's with me. And he's bringing me to the promised land. Isn't it interesting that it's the same story? And that's what brings us to this table.